Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 67 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Well, as of the date this episode hits the internet, we're just at a month into our submissions period for the West Virginia Writers Annual Writing Contest, the details of which can be found at our website, wvwriters.org. In the last episode of the podcast, we gave you all the major details of this year's writing contest, but we promised that our next episode would include the details on a special category in the adult version of the contest. This, of course, is the Pearl S. Buck Award for Writing for Social Change. Today on the show, I have two guests to help flesh out just what this category is all about, as well as tell us a bit about the lady who inspired it to begin with. My first guest is Jolie Lewis. She's the vice president of the board of directors of the Pearl S. Buck Birthplace Foundation in Hillsboro. Her career path has taken her from reporting on crime in Alaska as a newspaper reporter all the way to where she currently resides in Marion, Virginia. Her fiction has appeared in the Hopkins Review and Shenandoah, and a story by her published in Tin House was honored with a Pushcart Prize special mention. In 2008, she won a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award given to six emerging women writers annually. She was a Susanna McCorkle Scholar at the Suwanee Writers Conference and recipient of a professional development grant from the West Virginia Commission on the Arts. Lewis received her Master of Fine Arts degree at The Ohio State University, where she also served as instructor. When not writing, she teaches adult basic education and also serves on the board of directors for High Rocks Educational Corporation, a nonprofit empowerment program for high school girls. My second guest, Dr. Edwina Pendarvis, is no stranger to the podcast, having previously appeared in both our Seeking the Swan recorded live reading for episode 39 and as an interviewer of writer Jamie Gordon in episode 61. She's an instructor at Marshall University, but is also a writer and poet. She serves as book review editor for Now and Then, the Appalachian Magazine, and associate editor for the Journal of Appalachian Studies. Her work appears in these and other journals, such as Appalachian Heritage, Appalachian Journal, Cafe Review, and Indiana Review. She's co-authored several books in education, including Abilities of Gifted Children and out of our minds, anti-intellectualism and talent development in the U.S. schools. She's written biographies of four Nobel laureates in literature, which were published in dual language editions, in both English and Chinese, including one about Pearl S. Buck entitled Between Two Worlds. Her family memoir about life in eastern Kentucky, Raft, Tide, and Railroad, How We Lived and Died, was published by Blair Mountain Press, as was her poetry collection, Like the Mountains of China. Ladies, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you both today is because the Pearl S. Buck Birthplace Foundation is once again sponsoring the uh, is once again the sponsoring organization for one of the categories for our annual writing contest this year, which is of course the Pearl S. Buck Award for Writing for Social Change. 
we're going to get into the specifics of that category and what kind of writing would f- would qualify in just a little bit. But I thought it would be first good to talk about the author herself as a writer and as an individual and talk also about the place of her birth, which has now led to the creation of the sponsoring organization for the award. Dr. Pendarvis, I'd like to start with you. Um, as I said, you co-wrote a biography of Pearl S. Buck called Between Two Worlds, so I think this qualifies you as one of the best people in the room to give listeners unfamiliar with Pearl S. Buck kind of a, a thumbnail version of her life and why she's important to literature, not only in West Virginia, but indeed the world. Indeed the world, and West Virginians are often surprised when they hear all of Pearl Buck's accomplishments. One of the main things is that she was the first American woman ever to win a Nobel Prize. And I believe she's still one of only two American women who have ever won the Nobel Prize for Literature. I I should have said the Nobel Prize for Literature. Other American women have won the Nobel Prize. But she was was born in Hillsborough, and Jolie's going to talk about her birthplace some, I think, Um, born in Hillsborough, West Virginia, in Pocahontas County in 1892 but soon after that when she was still an infant she was her parents took her to China with them and most people know that she who know her work at all know that she was raised in China and lived there really half her life though she visited West Virginia a couple of times during her childhood and youth she didn't come back to the States to live until she was about 42 years old and, of course, she, she lived to be about 80, maybe 81 years old, and she wrote many, many books about China and about the United States. But one of the things that inspired our category was that so much of her writing is based on her strong sense of justice and of equality. And to me, that is so West Virginian, kind of an egalitarian sense that, everybody's equal and that one person's opinion about something is as valuable as another person's opinion about it. And so she was, when she came back here, she became very active in the civil rights movement of the time. Of course, now that was in the 1930s, but it had begun even then, of course. Mm-hmm. And she was very active, one of, you know, one of the first women active in the women's movement and she was respected by the great feminists of the day. Now, she didn't call herself a feminist, but when if you look at her life and all that she did, we would probably think of her as a feminist, but she just didn't like that label. Anyway, so she's really inspirational, and she has written hundreds of stories and essays and novels and nonfiction books and Nobody could, you know, it'd be hard to read them all, much less imagine how she could have written them all. I actually have a anecdote along those lines. For uh, several years, I worked for the Greenbrier County Library here in Lewisburg, and there was one evening we received a phone call from someone who I'm going to have to guess was about to write a report for college about Pearl S. Buck. But his question was, uh, Pearl S. Buck wrote one book or two books? And I was like, uh, I am pretty sure she wrote quite a few books. And he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but that's sort of not surprising because all people know, many people, all they know is the good earth. 
that was the one he cited. He was like, she wrote the good earth, right? And I was like, well, yeah, that's one of them, but she wrote quite a few others. And he was so distraught. His tone suggested that reading caused him great emotional turmoil and he was going to have to read her entire catalog or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be in excess of 50 books. In in excess of 50 books? I think 60. I've actually seen different counts at different places. Right, I've seen... I've seen at least 70 in some lists, too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's just hundreds if you think of all of the, you know, all of her types of writing. Well, Dr. Pendarvis, what drew you to Pearl S. Buck's writing? Uh, clearly, I, I would guess there's a connection if it led to the co-writing of a book about her life. Well, what, I, I had read The Good Earth years ago, and I liked it. But I read it again, you know, not too many, you know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, and I loved it. I couldn't believe how modern it was. I mean, here, here it was published about 1931 or 1932, and this is one of the most freest thinking, most modern books I've read, and plus it was just so fascinating in terms of its describing life in rural peasant, you know, China. I hadn't even realized she was born in West Virginia for a long time. And a friend and I stopped at her birthplace, and we we couldn't believe, you know, it was just fascinating. And then I thought, I haven't seen a children's biography or a young person's biography of Pearl Buck. And actually, there were some from a long time ago, maybe, maybe three. Um, but that was really my first idea, was that I wanted to write a children's biography of Pearl Buck. So, so... I got interested in her recently because she's from here, really, after reading The Good Earth for the second time. And that is actually one of the things that I, I is fascinating to me about her, her life um, is that, you know, she, she was given the Nobel Prize in Literature, um, and it was a little bit controversial, I think, among the literary elite at the time. Um, you know, Faulkner was writing then, and Hemingway, and Fitzgerald, and, um, you know, a lot of really top-notch, well-regarded, critic, you know, be, you know, really well-received critically writers. And, and I think it was a little bit of a surprise to some people that, that Pearl Buck received the Nobel Prize. And, and there's a certain lyricism to her work, but it's a very plain-spoken lyricism. And I think she was even trying to, like, emulate some of the cadences of, of the Chinese language um, in ways that are really neat. But, but part of, I think, what the Nobel Prize was recognizing was the fact that um, at the time, fascism was rising and Europe, and I think Hitler was coming into power in Germany, and the Swedish Academy wanted to recognize work that was, you know, promoting understanding and promoting tolerance, and, and, you know, so it's not surprising that, you know, Pearl would be recognized, and I just, I, I think it's neat that there's really such a history um, in our world of honoring work that is, you know, trying to impact the way people see each other, um, and I love that right. there's that history in Pearl's own life and that that's part of what our own sort of award is rooted in. And that was really one of her greatest political or social hopes was that to bridge the cultural gap between the East and the West. And Peter Kahn, her biographer, said that she influenced the American people's idea of what the Chinese were like more than any other writer ever had before her. And I'm, I'm sure that's true, that she formed our image of what, what it is to be Chinese at that time. Of course, 
you know, we know a lot more now, but... but and he is, I mean, he is, he, Peter Kahn has, and he's also where I got a lot of the information that I was just mentioning about the Nobel Prize and, and, and part of why they awarded it. But he also, I mean, he has, you know, it's a great biography for anyone who wants to learn more about her. You know, and he talks a lot about sort of what the stereotypes of people from China were at the time when her books appeared and how radically she changed people's understanding. Right, and William Faulkner, much as I like him, was really nasty about her winning the Nobel Prize. And I think it was partly because she was a woman, but he just, he insultingly called her China hand buck. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> as I say, I like him, but it, you know, authors, artists aren't always the most generous people in the world. You can be very talented and a jerk at the same time. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Pearl Buck definitely did not have easy going with. I know that the main house at the Pearl S. Buck birthplace site was originally constructed by Pearl's grandfather, Cornelius Stolting. But in more modern terms, how did the Birthplace Foundation come to maintain the property? Jim Costock, who was at the time the um, founder and editor of the West Virginia Hillbilly, and Richwood, I think, started putting together some um, energy to try to acquire it. Um, and then he worked really hard with the women's fun, uh, women's clubs around West Virginia. And Pearl herself um, came down and did a lot of touring of the state and campaigning and trying to raise money for the birthplace as well. Um, and what she really wanted to see happen, uh, she was so close to her mother and had held her in such, um, just such incredible admiration for her. And... Um, felt that her mom had been the most profound influence on her young life and just wanted to honor that. And she wanted to see the house um, become a museum. And I think even more importantly, um, you know, she kind of described it as being a, a gateway to, you know, new thinking and new ways of life. And uh, um, she wanted to see it become like a vital center um, of the arts and providing opportunities for people in the area. So that was sort of her vision for it. To, in order to um, help us get started, one of the things that she did, which is which is pretty amazing, is she gave the birthplace all of her manuscripts, um, which is not to say that we have her copyrights, but we have the actual physical written um, drafts of her books that are that we that we own. We keep them at um, West Virginia Wesleyan University in safekeeping, and scholars can go there and look at them. And there are photographs, and there are tape recordings, and all kinds of things um, up there in the collection. So, so she gave us that in order to you know help us get some momentum to get started. There's actually a connection between the Pearl S. Buck birthplace that is a direct connection to the history of West Virginia writers as an organization too, or at least we we share a common relative in Jim Comstock. Um, he was, of course, we just mentioned that he was the legendary editor of the West Virginia Hillbilly and wanted to preserve the the home, so he raised money from his readers toward such a renovation and also asked the West Virginia Federation for Women's Clubs to help raise funds and eventually take over the purchase thereafter. But just a few years after that, in February of 1977, he was among the charter members of our organization. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm not surprised, but I didn't know it. How did the idea of the Birthplace Foundation proposing the Pearl S. Buck Award for Writing for Social Change come about? It was it was really through our common board member, um, Kirk Judd. And it, it was it, am I correct that Kirk is a an actual founding member of West Virginia Writers? Is that he is? He's one of the charter members. Um, and he was he he has been on our board um, for longer than I have, um, which 
is probably, I've been on for, I think, about four years now, um, and he was on when I came on. Um, and this is, you know, just something he said. He said, you know, the writing aspect of Charles life is really important, and the birthplace should be trying to make every connection it can. And why don't you talk to the West Virginia writers and see what you can get going? And, um, and so we started that process, Eddie and I, last year. And so we, we traded a lot of emails and talked about some possibilities, and, and these ideas came up of, um, of both having this contest, which I thought was, was just a fabulous idea. Um, and then also last year we were able to come to the conference, and Eddie and I presented a couple sessions and had a really good time. Right, focusing on Pearl Buck. Our mm -hmm. sessions were, were focusing on her writing, tying it to current questions in writing. What sort of writing would fall under the umbrella of writing for social change? That's, that's um, something I really am excited to talk about. I, I think a lot of times when people think about writing for social change, they're probably thinking about essays um, that you know, set out to construct an argument and to make a point about changing the world. Um, and that is certainly a part of social change. It's a really impo an important part of writing about social change. But when I think about, um, it, well, and it's also, it's also the, a, a kind of writing that, that Pearl Buck herself did a great deal of, um, of essay writing and, you know, trying to convince people to change their minds about things and explaining how things really are. But there's also, um, you that's not what I. That's not the entirety of the category. Um, if you think about the Good Earth, um, that's also a book that was incredibly effective at changing people's beliefs um, about other parts of the world. And it didn't do it just by saying, "Here's how things really are." You know, this is what you should think. It didn't construct arguments in that way. What it did is it made us really. Um, relate to people who we wouldn't have necessarily thought that we would relate to easily. Um, and by seeing the reality of people's lives um, in different circumstances than our own, we are capable of um, forming bonds of empathy that we wouldn't be just if we were responding to an argument. So I really want to emphasize that showing the world as it is in fiction or in poetry can be just as important as as you know, the classic essay that that is that is constructing an argument for how things can be different, and and all of those meet the standards of what we'd be looking for. And I was thinking about it that it it need not be a global social change that uh, someone might choose to write about. A a individual's world can be changed in ways that only affect that person, but. Uh, there are there are their views on on a, a social issue. Instead of concentrating on the macro, the micro is sometimes almost just as important. That's a really good point. I mean, just like looking in our communities and seeing where there's poverty or seeing where there is um, you know unfair treatment of people based on gender or race or class or sexuality or anything. I mean, any of that would be um, you know would be great material. I guess uh, to see some examples of the form, we can also look at the winners from last year. Our first place winner was Daylene Berry, who I've met through the West Virginia Writers Summer Conference. She's the author of the 2011 memoir, Sister of Silence, but she won last year for a section of her upcoming book that was unpublished then, uh, Lethal Silence, which is the follow-up to Sister of Silence. Uh, Dr. Pendarvis, you were the judge for the category. Do you remember what stood out in Lethal Silence that uh, brought it to the first place? Yes, I do. And it was, although I 
judging that category in a way is what it has its own. They all have different difficulties, but one of the things that was kind of hard with that was with making judges, judging those entries, is that the often the compelling nature of the social issue they were talking about, it was hard to remember that the quality of the writing was important too. And then I guess what made, you know, those those top, the winners come out in my mind as, as the highest ranked was how beautifully they blended both the artistic qualities and the social issue so that so that it was powerful as both a work of art and a political statement. And, and as I say, there, you know, the entries they were really good, and there was poetry and essay, and I believe maybe even a short story. Uh, though, as as Jolie made clear, the genre, you know, we we don't care what genre it's in, but there were a variety of, of different types of writing. Well, I was going to plug the birthplace itself as a place that people can tour now, but it's not currently in its touring season. Um, this is, of course, located in Hillsborough, West Virginia, and Pocahontas County. And um, it, it, what, it, what is the, the tour season for the Pearl S. Buck birthplace? We're open May through October. Um, and we tend to be open, I think, five days a week. We've been sort of playing with the dates and times for the last couple of years. Um, and I don't know if we'll be making adjustments for the upcoming season. It really is a fascinating place to go to. I mean, I just wish more people would go. It, it is fascinating, not just that the money is great for you know for people to pay for the tours, but I just think people ought to see it. And the, yeah, the birthplace is pretty amazing. I mean, it, there's so much information about Pearl's life, and there are you know there's a lot of items from the from the family's history, but it's also a pretty neat place just for capturing. Um, you know, a way of life shortly after the end of the Civil War in this part of West Virginia, which, um, you know, it's a little snapshot of a period in time that's, that's amazing in its own right, separate from, from Pearl Buck's history. Yeah, and that her family built the place and how, how well built and how interestingly built it is. It's a fascinating um, structure in part because the ancestor who built it wanted to recreate sort of the Dutch-style home. Um, so... So that's that's what it is, you know, the two-story and um, you know, pretty much straight face. It's it's not a construction style that you see very often, but he wanted to capture that that feeling from home, and that's how he built this house. Well, in addition to three tours daily during its hours of operation, um, the the birthplace serves as a place where a number of events are held. Uh, one of them that struck me as very funny was a croquet tournament with the mascot of Pearl S. Duck. I think that's pretty popular, too, isn't it, Charlie? Yeah. The croquet tournament, I'm, I just love it. Um, we, this, we've had it for two summers now. Um, it, was the, it was the idea of the woman who um, is currently serving as our interim ex- executive director. Um, she was a, she's also a board member, and she just you know, sort of said, hey, wouldn't this go? Wouldn't this work? Doesn't sort of capture the vibe of the place? And... It, it takes a lot of work. It's such a sort of funny event. We have to mow the lawn, I don't know how many times in the couple of weeks leading up to make sure that we try to have the grass the right length and mark out courts. Um, 
and encourage people to come in, you know, fancy dress. So there are white skirts and wide-brimmed hats and <laughs> men in suspenders, and, you know, people just come and play and play croquet. And um, it's been very fun because it brings out a cross-section of the, of the community like you don't see at very many events. So, um, you know, it brings out... I mean, just just all kinds of people come, and I think there's you know there's some rivalry developing. I think the last year's the first year, the tournament was won by one of the guys from Boxley right up the road, and last year the Boxley team won, and there was a you know group challenging them who came really close, and um, it's a really great event, um, and it's a fundraiser for us. So, um, is there such a thing as croquet smack talk? <laughs> I, I, I don't know about that. I don't think it's gotten quite to that point yet. <laughs> but I mean, it's it, the strategy is. It's, it's, I mean, it's such a recreational game, and it's something that anybody can come out and play, even with no experience. But as you play it, you dif- you discover that there is kind of a, a you know a strategy to it, and and that makes it I think more fun. That as you get good at it, you realize, okay, if I knock this person's ball this way at this moment, that gives me another opportunity to do this other thing, and so. I just imagine several men in gabardine suits standing around threatening to get more wickets than the other team. I, I, I don't technically know the rules of croquet, but hey, I know it involves wickets. That's about as much as I know. Do we still well, have is the writer's workshop every connected with a little level heritage, little level heritage fair? Is there yes. going to be a pro book writing workshop this summer? Yes, um, and, and the, the Writer's Workshop over the last couple of years has become a partnership with Allegheny Echoes, um, and this is, again, through the help of Kurt Judd, who um, is involved in both organizations. Um, and what, ha- what, what the Writer's um, Workshop has developed into is um, Kirk and his creative writing class at Allegheny Echoes comes to the ProBuck birthplace for one day of classes. Um, and typically, um, the master writer at the workshop um, then leads the workshop at our site. And what that allows us to do is actually um, we open up the registration um, and, and sort of expand the, class, the size of the class for that day. And anyone who is interested in coming and being part of that, like, you know, we sponsor that event. We'd love to have people come sit in on whatever the session will turn out to be this year. But, uh, you know, if anybody is interested in joining us for that workshop, they should just contact the birthplace. Our you know information is online, our phone number, and our email address. And we would love to have um, people come and join us. And we provide a tour um, as part of the event, and we provide lunch. And um, you know, I went last year, um, and it was when Jim Minnick was up from Virginia. He, um, he's the blueberry farmer and memoir writer, and it was just oh, he's wonderful. Such a nice event. It was really wonderful. So we would very much encourage anyone who's interested. Right, members of West Virginia writers in particular might want to come down for that workshop and to tour the house. (laughs) We would love it. And, of course, we'll have a link to the Pearl S. Buck Birthplace website on our podcast page, podcast.wvwriters.org. Well, before we wrap things up, you're both writers, so I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what you're currently working on. This is funny. I lived in Alaska for several years, and then I moved to West Virginia, and... um, when I lived in West Virginia, the whole time I was there, I was pretty much working on material that was set in Alaska. Um, and now that I have moved um, to Virginia, although I'm not very far from West Virginia, I'm less than an hour away. Um, now I'm finally processing some of my West Virginia material. <laughs> um, and I'm 
I'm writing. Um, I'm writing. Uh, working on a novel about a girl who becomes a nanny in a small town in rural West Virginia. Um, and you know, I, I, I think not even 50 pages in, so it'll. I don't know all that well where it's headed, but um, I'm interested in um, exploring some issues of race and class and um, community um, through the, the novel as she sort of has adventures. And Dr. Pendarvis? Well, I'm finishing. What I'm not doing is I'm not writing book reviews I should be doing, uh, but I'm finishing up editing a, editing a chapter on, it's called Learning the Mountain to Fly, and it's looking at the dialects of Appalachian children and how that compares with the dialect of language arts textbooks used in the schools because I, I think that, you know, it's sort of, sort of a clash of dialects naturally mm-hmm. for some children. So that was that's fun. I'm doing editing work on that and I'm getting ready to write book reviews. Um, I'm always working on a poem or two and always working on a novel that will probably never come to be, but it's about, it's set in Florida. That's about it. Uh, Ladies, thank you for being here and joining us on the podcast to talk about this today. Thank you for asking about Pearl Buck. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It was really nice to talk with you. Thanks again to Dr. Edwina Pendarvis and Jolie Lewis for taking time out of their schedules to speak with me. Jolie wrote me mere hours ago to give me a late-breaking update on the identity of the judge for the Pearl S. Buck Award for Writing for Social Change. Our judge will be none other than Lee Maynard. Lee, you probably know for his Crumb trilogy, which includes the novels Crumb, Screaming with the Cannibals, and The Scummers. He was also our keynote speaker at last year's West Virginia Writers Summer Conference and always brings fantastic workshops. We've also had a couple of podcasts featuring Lee in the past, with our former president, Kat Pleska, interviewing him regarding his then-semi-fictional memoir, Pale Light of Sunset. And since we're announcing Lee Maynard as a judge, oh, what the hey, we may as well go ahead and announce the rest of the judges we have lined up for the contest as well. Jean Briner will be our judge for long poetry. She's a poet and playwright and registered nurse in the Newton Falls, Ohio area. She is the author of the books Breathless, Blind Horse Poems, Eclipse Stories, No Matter How Many Windows, and Tenderly Lift Me, Nurses Honored, Celebrated, and Remembered. Our judge for short poetry is Diane Gilliam. She is the author of the award-winning poetry collection Kettlebottom. This was a groundbreaking collection of poetry set in a coal camp, which also won a pushcart prize and was an American Booksellers Association book since pick for top 10 poetry books of 2005. She is the winner of the 2008 Chafin Award for Appalachian Literature. Dr. Chris Green is our judge for Appalachian writing. He's a writer and instructor whose monograph, The Social Life of Poetry, Appalachia, Race, and Radical Modernism, won the 2009 Weatherford Award for Best Nonfiction Book About Appalachia. He used to teach at Marshall University, where he co-edited Cole, a poetry anthology, a collection of 98 poets designed for non-academic readers. His own book of poetry is called Rushlight, and he currently teaches at Berea College. Emerging Writers Pros will be judged by Pam Hansen, who is a longtime member of the West Virginia Writers family. 
She and her mother write inspirational fiction for Guideposts Publishing and romance novels for Harlequin. She currently resides with her family in Nebraska. Short Story will be judged by Alabama's Dr. Jimmy Carl Harris. He's taught workshops at the West Virginia Writers Summer Conference in years past and is always one of the highest rated workshop presenters there. He writes, teaches, and edits mostly fiction, and his collections of prize-winning short stories include Walking Wounded and Wounds That Bind. Emerging Writers Poetry will be judged by Brett Hersey. His poetry has appeared in over 100 literary journals across the country, and his plays have also been produced in more than 100 theaters across the world. He currently teaches playwriting and poetry at Longwood University in Virginia. Becca J.R. Lockman will be our inspirational writing judge. She teaches writing at Ohio University, where she also received her M.A. in English. She holds B.A.s in music composition and creative writing from Otterbein University and a Master's of Fine Arts from the Bennington College Writing Seminars. Her 2004 chapbook, Songs from the Springhouse, won the National Florence Kahn Memorial Award, and her latest collection is called The Apple Speaks. Gretchen Moran Laskus is our young adult and middle grade judge. She's an eighth generation West Virginian who now lives in Virginia. Her first book was The Midwife's Tale, released in 2003, which won quite a number of awards, including the Appalachian Studies Association's Weatherford Award for Outstanding Contribution to Appalachia. In 2007, her book The Miner's Daughter was published. She served as the 2012 Appalachian Heritage Writer in Residence at Shepherd University participating in the West Virginia Fiction Competition and Fall Residency events, as well as the completion of the 2013 Anthology of Appalachian Writers. And for our short nonfiction category, it will be judged by Dana Wildsmith. She's a former guest of this very podcast. Her most recent book, a nonfiction collection of essays titled Back to Abnormal, was finalist for the Georgia Author of the Year in Essay. She's been a writer-in-residence for the Devil's Tower National Monument and for the Island Institute in Sitka, Alaska. You can read the full bios of all of our judges at our contest page, wvwriters.org contest.html. That's where you can find the contest entry forms for both the Adult Contest and the New Mountain Voices Student Contest. And if you wouldn't mind, please do print off a few copies of each of those forms to drop in conspicuous places around your town or to give to a young person that you know. We would greatly appreciate you helping spread the word. We'll have another contest-related podcast coming up before the end of the contest season. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose music can be found at popswalker.com and cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded in Studio A of the Mr. Herman Studios located atop a hill in Greenbrier County.